So, hi. How are you all? Oh, just living the dream. <laughs> but doing all doing right. Well. <laughs> okay. Yeah, now just to get it clear. Okay, so we, uh, for the listeners, we have two guests today. And introduce yourselves. Amanda, you start. And you all are also in different locations as well. So tell us a little bit about where you are, too. I'm Amanda Adams. I am a Baltimore-based fiber artist and illustrator, and I co-host a podcast called Beyond the Studio, which is a podcast for artists, another one. And I co-host that with Nicole, who is in California. Yeah, and my name is Nicole Muller. I'm based in San Francisco, California currently. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. I'm the second half of Beyond the Studio podcast. Now, interestingly enough, uh, our our paths are very close to one another. Actually, I grew up in, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Cockies oh. to be specific. Oh, wow. My grandparents are from there. They used to, my grandmother was one of the founding members of the Maryland Institute of Science and oh. used, to work, used to work for McCormick Foods. And oh, my goodness. All, so the, had, all the big local stuff. Oh, yeah. So we very iconic. Yeah. My father sang in the choir at the Roman Catholic Church and everything. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But I was, I was raised in Washington, D.C., though. But then I also mm-hmm. went to grad school in San Francisco at the uh, at San Francisco Art Institute as well. So I did yeah. see that. Yeah. You've run in the same circles here. Mm-hmm. All right. My first question that I, of course, ask everybody, which I believe is almost similar to what you all do on your podcast. So I apologize for looking like I'm copying you. But I I generally ask people, like, how did they even become creative? So like, what was the influence in their lives? You know, was it a a parent, a family member, a teacher, some experience as a child? Like, how did you even come to the idea of being creative? There were a number of different influences that really informed my the trajectory that I'm on. You know, I think that everybody is inherently creative. So, you know, like many kids, I was drawing all the time. Uh, it was a favorite hobby. I, you know, was really interested in becoming an animator initially. And I think the the early home influences, you know, I'm lucky that my my family has been really supportive over the years. And my mom is a musician and my dad has worked in sales. So I think there's always been this kind of, you know, dual influence of the really kind of practical, pragmatic, and then the really creative side that I feel like has sort of led me to, you know, the type of work that Amanda and I now do on the podcast. But they they really encouraged, you know, me growing up. And I also had a number of teachers and mentors that I think really uh, were impactful one of them in particular, my high school art teacher, you know, really helped me take just drawing and sketchbooks all the time from a hobby into something that started to feel like a, you know, a realistic pathway and introduced me to this idea of art schools and really exposed, you know, her students to a lot of opportunities and and what it might look like to pursue a career in the arts. And so I think that's, that's kind of what sent me off on this path of, you know, from high school, I, I started taking 
more formal classes and took uh, did some summer programs, some you know pre college programs. Started uh, applying to these art competitions and you know trying to get scholarships to go to some art school, and um, then ended up studying painting and illustration on the East Coast with uh, Amanda, which is where the two of us met in in Baltimore at the Maryland Institute College of Art. So lived there for many years before moving out to the Bay Area. So that's been the story in a nutshell, but I think it's a series of decisions along the way. And then, you know, again, a lot of influences. When were the two of you in Baltimore? I wanted to know if our paths possibly crossed. I've been here since 2009. No, we didn't then. Yeah, 2008 to 2016, I believe. Yeah, no, we didn't cross then. I was... I was, I had left the DC area by 2000. I used to, I used to party okay. in, in, in Fells Point and all oh, kinds yeah. of stuff back, in, back in late, late nineties, <laughs> but the, that was a long time. So I'm obviously older than you all. That's fine. So Amanda, <laughs> your, your story, your origin story. Oh, my origin story. So I was born. No, I. Every superhero <laughs> needs an origin story. So what's yours? It all started. Yeah. yeah, this is my my prequel. So I, both my parents are pretty creative, but they kind of grew up in sports. Like my dad is a golf pro, and my like mom and him met, and they used to do golf tours together and work at pro shops and all of that. And I am just naturally a very defiant person so I was like sports absolutely not what's the opposite direction I can go in art that's what I'm gonna do so and I naturally just really loved to make art and I used to just cover our walls with these drawings of these dream homes I would come up with I thought that I was going to go into like interior design or maybe architecture and my mom had had she had gone to school for housing and interior design that was her major but uh, she didn't use her degree, but it, she had all of her old like textbooks and like drawing materials and stuff around the house. So I used to use that and like come up with blueprints all the time. And then I realized I didn't really care about math. <laughs> and so I thought architecture may not be the right route for me. And I wanted more freedom and I didn't want to have to care if things were structurally sound or safe. So <laughs> I went into art. It was the only thing that really felt right to me the only thing that made sense i have other interests but art felt like the opportunity to be myself and to be free and to kind of come up with whatever weird life i wanted for myself and just tradition in general wasn't particularly appealing to me so i was like i'm going the contrarian route going to be an artist and then it just it fit so i kept doing that went to Micah, the Maryland Institute College of Art with Nicole. That's where she and I met. We were freshman roommates and well, my freshman year, she was actually my RA. And we became good friends through that and would always talk about our art and kind of what we were learning in our practices and by trying to run art businesses and decided to do a podcast together from there. That leads to the question of like, basically, so now you all have been out of school. When did you get 2008, nine, something like that? I graduated from high school in 2008, but I graduated from college in 2013. I didn't go to college right away, but I went like a year later. Yeah. And I was in uh, 2011. Wow. I feel old. Okay. Anyways. So. <laughs> 
So that's apologies. Fine. We'll we'll make it two thousand six just for. <laughs> no God, no. I just feel we're old. we're not thirty. We're forty. 30, no, 35, no, eight, no. I don't know. No, <laughs> it's, it's perfectly fine. No, <laughs> well, I'm interested, actually, one of the big things I'm interested in is I am a professor and I teach uh, arts at art schools and things like this. And I feel like academic institution is failing our next generation miserably when it comes to preparing them for the business of the arts. Like they do a great job of teaching skills and teaching craft and teaching all and concept, but they woefully under prepare outgoing students for the true stuff. The, 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 what I think is the most difficult stuff for artists to do, which is running their art as a business. Yeah. I mean, I felt like that was part of our motivation for starting the podcast because so many things Nicole and I had to learn the hard way and kind of learn by trial and error about running our own businesses and spent so much time researching from listening to podcasts and reading and taking online business classes to try to figure out how to fill the void of those skills. Um, I mean, I think part of it is like when we're in school, we may not necessarily be thinking okay, how am I turning this into a career that lasts? Like you're thinking I'm refining my art skills so I can be a good enough artist to have a successful business, but you have to have that kind of business knowledge as well. And it's really hard to to teach, I'm sure, but also hard to, to learn. But I think it's super necessary and sure some things you can only learn by doing, but if you have the tools in advance, it makes it a hell of a lot easier. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? I don't. I'd yes, feel free okay. to fucking shit all you want. It's, it's <laughs> fine. I'm like, got no problem with it. Okay, yeah. good. That it, is very natural for me, and I don't. Podcast. I don't want to offend. <laughs> no, it would take a lot to offend me. Actually, the only thing that's okay. ever offended me is something I said out loud, and then I was like, "Oh my god, that was the most offensive thing I've ever heard," and I said it. So <laughs> sometimes words fall out, and you're like, "Was that me?" That doesn't sound like uh, me, but it no, sounded it was, exactly it was, like me. And I, and I did it on the podcast, and I left it in when I edited it, no less, too. But so, yeah. You called yourself out. I did. Well, well we're yeah. all about having those unfiltered conversations. Well, my um, podcast is I think, called The Wise Yeah, Fool, I think. So. <laughs> True. Just got to lean into it. <laughs> yeah, that is was really the, the main motivation, like Amanda said, for starting Beyond the Studio is to have those same conversations. So, you know, I think we're we're grateful to be here because I, you know, I've listened to your podcast as well. And I think there is definitely an alignment in that mission. And that's really solidified for us over the years, just, you know, coming from that that personal experience of graduating from art school and having a lot of questions and sort of feeling our way forward and having to piece together those next steps from a variety of different sources and using each other as a sounding board. So, you know, that's was sort of the origin story of Beyond the Studio as well. But I think, you know, from there, it's been a couple of years now and we've had the opportunity, like you have, I'm sure, to talk with so many artists and and to have these conversations, I think, and to start to recognize some of these gaps and to, to gain a more realistic picture of the ways that artists are actually building their lives and putting things together. And so it's become a, a real passion, I think. And at least for me, it's it's sort of evolved into this personal mission around wanting to bring more of that education to artists. I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but part of my work in San Francisco is in career development at California College of the Arts. And so... 
it's, you know, very intertwined with I would what I would describe as my day job, uh, whereas the podcast is one of our side hustles, passion projects. And so it's for that reason exactly. I think there is definitely work to be done and there is a big gap to fill at at a not just an institutional level, but I would say, you know, all of higher ed. And that's become a part of what you know, what we try and do through the podcast. And so I'm really glad that you're having these conversations and and asking those questions too. There are lots of us out there. There are a good number of podcasts that I would say are, are, I'm not going to say they're the same, but they're similar to what we're trying to do because what you all are trying to do is, is pretty similar. And I actually knew of your podcast before I started mine. And I thought, well, but I thought <laughs> it's going to, here we go. So this is me being the fool. I thought I would do it differently. And I would actually physically travel around in Europe talking to people. So I started with Berlin and then I went to Vienna and, and then I was going to go to Amsterdam and and then all of a sudden I can't travel. So now I'm having to do everything virtually. So it's um, sort of put a damper on one end of it, but it's also opened up a lot of other great opportunities Mm. in the other end. So where I was trying to make mine a bit unique from one like yours, I ended up having to pretty much do the same as you. So I apologize for that. How dare you give out more more free information to support artists in a similar fashion? Yeah, but you were here first, so, you know. Oh, hardly. I mean, there were so many other podcasts that we were inspired by and that we listened to, and we were like, okay, this is doing a good job, but I kind of want to do something slightly different, or I wish that they were asking these questions, and I want to ask those questions. So I think it's important to have anyone that's willing to do the work to provide the information to artists like the more the merrier we can all support each other and like we're not competitors here we are collaborating and like that allows our individual audiences to find each other as well so you know we can all rise together yeah i would hardly say we're original (laughs) we were influenced by so many other artists that were also doing the work and that's really what motivated us curator for a long time before i thought about starting a podcast yeah, and people like, you know, Sharon Loudon and Heather Bandari and these people who now we've been able to connect with through the show, um, you know, they've also been doing this work and having these same conversations for many years. And so I'm I'm just excited whenever I hear about this dialogue taking place and that we can have it in a more interconnected way. And you can curse on mine. So, yeah. <laughs> and swearing. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Love it. Just, All right. You know, gratuitous. <laughs> I'm all for it. Gratuitous is the best stuff. So go back a step. So now what I'm actually interested in to get here from you all is, okay, so you're out of school. It sounds like you you each have your own little creative endeavors and then you have your side hustles. So like basically given that A, you all run a podcast about how to be successful in the arts. So how are you all doing in the arts with your own practice and your own career? Great question. You mean how credible are we as podcast hosts to have that these conversations? Not, no, no, no. Okay, wait. Okay, I, I, I will. I will explain my reason for that question. It is not questioning your credibility. It's actually I'm, <laughs> what I'm wondering is what have you learned from your conversations that you have been able to integrate into your careers? Because I'm doing all these podcasts similarly, and I'm listening yeah. to all this stuff, and I don't listen or I, I hear it. It makes sense, and yet. 
somehow I don't find the motivation for whatever reason to actually implement a lot of these great ideas that are being handed to me on a silver platter. So my question for you is basically, are you able to implement all these sort of recommendations and advice that you hear because I'm not able to? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I, I was just really kidding because from the very beginning, we've been really intentional about not positioning ourselves as experts. You know, this isn't meant to be a 10 step plan to achieving your dream career in the arts, but really that we are coming at this from the perspective of also learning and, and growing and, you know, being in this place of emerging artists and Amanda and I have very different creative practices. So it's, it's, also been, I think, a great opportunity for us to bring artists onto the show that come from, you know, different different disciplines and different backgrounds. And so there are definitely lots of, I would say, strategies or mindset shifts or even just practical tools and systems that we've learned through talking with other artists that we've been able to implement. But it's also, I think, just shown us how individualized every artist's career path is and how so much, you know, can also depend on circumstance or location or, you know, so many other factors that would be difficult, if not impossible, to replicate in your own life. Yeah, I think there there have been a lot of a lot of strategies and tools and every every artist's path is so uniquely different and so it has shown us in a lot of ways how individualized a creative career is. So in some ways it's, you know, it's impossible to replicate exactly another artist's career and and we've learned that through doing the podcast but there there have been so many, you know, strategies and um, just mindset shifts and things that we have been able to take into our own creative practices and every time I listen back to an episode I, I learn something new because you know of the the wealth of information that the other artists bring on the show so that could be I don't know everything from like strategies around reaching out to potential collectors or trying to line up artist talks as a means of you know generating other opportunities or just ways of you know, installing a show or I think trying to think of other specific examples, but I honestly feel like there's been so many and that's not to say that, you know, working on the podcast has all of a sudden skyrocketed our individual artistic careers, but I do think that, you know, that's been a lesson too, is just the, the value of time and understanding that this is part of a long game and that, you know, these, a lot of these recommendations or, or things that you know we're putting in place it's it's about laying a foundation and creating a system that you can build on that works for your life and that you know will change over time but is something that you're you're able to see over the course of many years so i think it's just reinforced that for me okay wait refresh my memory what is it you do for at ccac i well it's actually a fairly recent role i started working there last year as the career engagement advisor, working primarily with design and architecture students in the career development office. This is a branch of student affairs, so outside of the classroom. And then recently I stepped into the role of assistant director for career development for the fine arts and humanities programs. So this was just before uh, this global pandemic that we're in now really kind of took hold. And so we've been sheltering in place and working remotely for the last month, but that's so that's definitely changed the nature of the work that we're doing. Now my role is really thinking about ways to engage with fine arts students and how to bring more of this conversation into the classroom. 
every time I listen to an episode, I kind of pull some new information about out of it. And I try very consciously to do that because a lot of times I'm like, I edited this episode for like two solid days. I know what it sounds like. But sometimes when you go back and listen to a conversation, you're like, that was incredibly insightful and did not stand out to me before when I heard it. But all of a sudden now, because of adjustment of circumstances, it matters to me. So I think returning to the conversations helps the information to stay relevant and therefore applicable. But at the same time, I am still doing a lot of the same dumb stuff I was doing before the podcast, regardless of how much incredible advice has been given. Like I think almost everyone that comes on is like, definitely use some type of online tool for your bookkeeping. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to keep doing it manually, regardless. (laughs) And I don't know if that's just a stubborn habit or if, you know, that's just what works for me. So I do it or it forces me to be super conscious of how much is going in and out. But I I try very hard to keep this idea in mind. And I learned this from Marie Forleo, not personally, but, you know, from all of her free information online. But she is like an online coach. And I took a a business class with her right after college because I was like, I don't know what to do. But she does. And I want to do that. But she says, you know, regardless of how many times you've consumed information, if you approach it with the idea Like, what can I learn from this? Even if you have the thought, I know this already, you may still be able to glean some new information from it. So I I try to keep that attitude. But I'm, like I said, I'm still doing a lot of the same dumb stuff. Oh, sure. I've read Art and Fear probably five times in my lifetime. And every time I read it, I get something Mm -hmm. different out of it, even though it's the exact same book. Right. It's good to, to revisit things that, I mean, I feel like that same thing applies to all things. Like if I'll listen to an album years later after it meant nothing to me, it may then mean so much to me and just being willing to gain new perspective on whatever is I think important and helpful. It's probably more about where you are in your life than the other thing is. So yeah. The business of your stuff. Amanda, I saw that you actually have been able to get work in anthropology. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, on paper, incredibly incredibly impressive. How did you do it? So, the step-by-step process of what happened there. <laughs> I love We're formulas. Gonna... <laughs> Give me formulas, anything that is just a step-by-step process that anybody that's listening can do the exact same thing Uh-oh. and achieve the same results, do it. <laughs> then this Tell is me. not going to be great right. for your well, listeners. Then this starts with a disclaimer. There are elements of privilege and personal connection. I would say luck, but I think a lot of it was just timing and circumstance. So I started making fiber art in uh, like right after college. And I had my work in a show. Friends of the person who was putting the show on, who is my friend, they own a store in Baltimore. They saw the work and they were like, hey, we'd love to carry this in our store. So I talked to them directly. Now they're like some of my best friends but they started carrying my work in their store. While at that store, a buyer for anthropology who was probably scouting out small brands who had also gone to the same college Nicole and I went to. So there's the big, like, I mean, being able to go to a college and having that alumni connection is surprisingly helpful, uh, which you don't think about in school. But when you're like, oh, this person went to the same school, I am some reason going to trust them and put them at the top of the pile despite the fact that I don't know them so I think that was probably a factor but 
they saw my work there, reached out to me. I thought that it was like a spam email. And I was like, I definitely unsubscribed from anthropology. What's going on? But I reached back out after I read the email. It was also around the time when a bunch of things from Urban Outfitters, who are owned by the same parent company, was getting called out for stealing work from artists. So I was really stressed out and paranoid about that aspect. I have a friend, another another like privilege reference, who is an attorney, and she looked over all of the paperwork and basically made sure that I made more money, that there were really good stipulations to protect my artistic integrity and the lifetime of my work under their brand and like how I was represented. So knowing an attorney helps. <laughs> Having personal connections from shared people or job experiences or educational experiences, those things are all factors. Um, but that's how that happened. <laughs> Okay, so white privilege and knowing the right yeah. people. Got it. Although right. they didn't know I was white at the time via email, unless they had looked me up beforehand and they were like, that white girl is going to sell us some mushrooms made out of felt. Oh, is that what they were? Mushrooms made out of felt? Mushrooms made out of felt. <laughs> all right. These days, how are you all having to make livings? Are you? I mean, it sounds like, Nicole, you have a pretty good, stable job that gives you health insurance and a retirement benefit and all that. Um, but Amanda, what are you doing? Are, are you having to hustle f like multiple jobs and all this stuff, just like most of us? Well, I started my brand while I was still in college, worked up until 2007, 16 or 17, doing a lot of food service jobs, you know, restaurants, bars, cafes, retail. I mentioned off the air that I had worked at Apple for a while. So I was working a lot of multiple jobs while I was building my business. And then I started getting into doing wholesale work, which allowed for a much higher volume. So selling work in bulk to stores, to online stores, and that helped to kind of grow my name. Also a lot of time and research and energy into social media, which is exhausting but now more than ever it's the thing that fuels my business but up until 2016 or 17 I can't remember exactly I was working multiple jobs and hustling to build my business which is called Close Call Studio and now that is my full-time gig in addition to the podcast although the podcast is more a labor of love as opposed to a stream of income. My husband is a musician so he has also a very sort of similar weird lifestyle of working different jobs and supporting a creative path, although now he is unemployed. But uh, I am basically just running my business online completely right now, just selling directly. Nicole, what are you having to do? Are you, are, is your one job at the school enough or are you having to do multiple things? Because I mean, if at the least you have your own artistic practice as well as your job and the podcast, what else do you do? What else? <laughs> That's really it. But yeah, like I mentioned, um, working at CCA has been uh, somewhat recent within the last year. I've held a couple of, of what I guess you would call you know, full-time day jobs with benefits in the past. But for the majority of my career, I've been self-employed like Amanda. And so although it's been maybe a little more circuitous, so lots of creative gigs and freelance projects thrown in there, I started 
mural painting uh, part-time right after graduating from school and was also working at the art college that we went to. So did a a brief stint later in college admissions, which was another full-time role. But I had eventually, with a friend, taken over this mural painting business. So that was really the bulk of our income for those first few years out of school. was doing some artist residencies, but then mural painting was really what was sustaining us. This was commercial mural painting, so very, I would say, kind of a separate you know, creative practice from my, my studio work and then different freelance and, uh, you know, part-time jobs to, to fill in the gaps. And when I moved out to San Francisco with my partner, who's a graphic designer several years ago, I left my, my other full-time day job working at Micah behind and didn't have much lined up coming out here, but was really trying to focus, um, to, to redirect towards my, my studio practice. So it was just, you know, reaching out to art consultants, making a lot of work, getting set up in my studio, and then working part-time in an art museum here. And that was working all right. But as you know, or maybe you don't, <laughs> San Francisco is very expensive to live in. For any listeners, it is I think the most expensive uh, city in the United States and so it's very challenging for an artist uh, and I would say you know we've always had multiple multiple hustles and and jobs and so I think I realized that you know working part-time and then also selling work wasn't enough to sustain me for that moment in time and so that and a number of other things caused me to sort of shift course. And we were also, I think, at that point, really diving into the podcast. So that was becoming a larger part, I would say, of that, you know, that ratio of the makeup of our life. And so I wanted to, to focus more on that, actually, too. And now it's been working at CCA, which, you know, has been the bulk of my income for this last year, whereas my studio practice, I would say, is maybe about a third. And then um, the podcast, like Amanda said, is mostly a labor of love, but something that we've also been really upfront and open about developing into another income stream as well. I notice you all have a grant, actually, that you received for that, which lends me to the big question that, of course, I ask most people, which is, Grant writing, artist statements, residency applications, bane of my fucking existence. I hate (laughs) doing these things with such a passion. It's not even funny. They are horrible. I mean, and and I, through a conversation with another person on the podcast, actually found out that they are literally new. Like it's only been since I think the mid seventies, early eighties that the the need for artists to actually write about their work eloquently has even come about. I wish I lived in that previous generations when we (laughs) didn't have to write about our works because I'm really annoyed with the entire process. Partly, let me give you a little background on that. I'm from the United States. I lived in the Middle East. I'm now in Europe. Now, when you write grants or residencies or anything for places in different regions, and whether it's a private foundation versus a governmental organization versus a whatever, each one of them have different criteria that they're seeking, and they have a different vernacular that they want you to write it in. And then they even have a different voice they want you to write it in. For instance, in the United States, it's very, I call it sort of cheerleadery. Like they want you to, you know, say like, I'm great. I'm so fabulous. You want me as part of your program. You want me as part of your creation. Yay for me. And I should be part of your thing. Whereas in Europe, it's very much more humble. It's, this is what I do. And if you like it, I would 
appreciate to be part of your pro your program so it's a it's less flowery and less adjectives kind of thing and so i'm a little tired of this i want a consistent vocabulary that everybody agrees on and a consistent way of writing them because i'm so tired of not only having to research them which is its own problem and then write them and then figure out how they want it written. So it's not even just saying like, I can eloquently express what it is I wanna do, but I, you have to tailor it constantly to each individual person you're writing something to. And that is exhausting. Yes, <laughs> I think you summed it up well. You, you definitely sound more experienced with uh, writing applications and grant writing than we do. And just, just having that global perspective of it is, is really important. But it makes me think about, the, the, through my work at CCA, you know, we're often coaching students around putting together applications and writing cover letters for roles that they're applying to. And it's a, it's a similar process in what you pointed out that, that Vernacular is really important, so I think the language is something that we pay really close attention to. You know, and often these are for, I would say, opportunities within the Bay Area or within the United States, but CCA also has a very large international student population, and so I think some of those cultural differences really do come into play where, you know, you're having to have conversations about how do you write for this particular audience, you know, how do you direct your application or letter you know, using the cues in, like you mentioned, the, the application itself to dictate how, how you would approach this. Just to be clear, I have a lot of experience writing these applications, but I do not have a lot of experience uh, of being awarded any of these applications. So I'm aware, basically, well, yeah. like, this is, okay, here, like, this is the crux of all the problem. I know, mm -hmm. I know everything I'm doing wrong, but nobody will, will tell me how to do it right. Yeah. You never get feedback. You you yeah. write a grant or you write a residency application, you get one of two answers. Yes, and you don't know what you did to get yes, and if you get a no, you don't know what you did wrong, so you don't know how to do it better next time. Yeah. Yeah, I know Nicole and I have talked about for grants that we haven't received that reaching out to try to do some type of consultation on like can you talk to us about our application and what made us not get it? I know for from my experience with grants, it's it's not something that is as common in the like maker world that I tend to participate in more. So my first experience with grant writing really happened through the podcast with Nicole and Nicole took the reins on that and I was like, I can handle putting together the budget. That's what I know how to do. And I can proofread, but Nicole has a much better understanding of that, which I am grateful for and benefiting from. But yeah, grants are, they're just hard in general. At anytime she sends stuff over, I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. I, this looks beautiful. Thank you for putting this together, but I don't understand why saying one thing over another or changing this wording makes a difference, but it does. And it's very confusing to try to navigate those weird preferences from one panel to another. It's really a bit of a numbers game. And like you said, it's it's about finding that right fit. So I think both finding those opportunities that align really well with what you're already trying to do, but then also being able to communicate that. And that's so vague and difficult. And, and oftentimes you don't receive feedback. Um, you know, we always ask, and I would encourage anybody that's applying to ask, but um, you know, they're probably not 
they don't have the bandwidth to you know provide feedback for all those applications but there are lots of panels and workshops both online and regionally on grant writing and so we've tried to you know attend a couple of those and i would say for anyone that's just getting started to definitely definitely do that this is a piece of advice that's been given on our podcast that we have not implemented but i'll share it here cuz i think it's a good idea is to attend or to <laughs> sit on a panel i think this actually came up in the context of public art projects but i i'm sure it applies to anything is to wherever you can to to volunteer for to to be on the other side because uh, i think you'll learn a lot just by seeing applications that come through and i would say that's true because like i mentioned i'm reviewing cover letters and cvs all the time through my current role and and i've started to notice things that i would have never thought about in writing my own cv or, or cover letter so that's that's valuable have you read the the art i think it's the artist guide to grant writing by uh, Gigi Rosenberg. No. It's sitting on my bookshelf here. I can't say it's a, it's not a light summer read, but if you're really looking for a, a good guide <laughs> to grant writing, that's... Maybe a good quarantine read. Yeah, possibly. So that's a good resource. I have tried reading all those like how-tos and walk, you know, here's 10 steps to success. I've tried all those things and they... In the end, I'm going to go back to Amanda's story for this one. In the end, it, no matter what you do, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many seminars you go to, it really all comes back to who you know and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's actually something that's been reiterated too in you know different conversations we've had with artists. I think one example was that you know we were asking the question of how did, how did this museum you know exhibition come about for you? Like if you had to trace it back where do you think that originated and of course it's the product of of years of work and you know has to do with their the body of work but what was also interesting was just that idea that you know they probably somebody had seen them give an artist talk and then you know they knew somebody that worked at this other gallery or other institution and they they happened to mention that they really enjoyed their work and then they you know then they took a second look at their work and then that you know kind of led into another thing so i think there is this series of events where those things get reinforced so it wouldn't be surprising to think that you know maybe someone is familiar with your your practice or your podcast and then they see your application come through and they you know they give it a, a second look so there are those that that just happens and I, I think we've you know one thing that is true is that it's never personal and so I always tell students that if you are getting you know between 10 to 20 percent of the opportunities you apply for that's a really great track record you know that's really lucky so just understanding that there is this process of rejection and that's to be expected. Amanda, so the the issue of like writing about your work is not just necessarily to me about grants and residencies, but like for yours, you're you're doing corporate stuff. You're having to do public relations and marketing and social media. I mean, to me, that is the, uh, it's a contemporary version of still having to do the same kinds of statements that, you know, fine artists do for galleries. So how have you adjusted that ability and learned how to do that well there is still like even though i'm not doing grant writing there is a lot of copy being written in running a business you have to write all your product descriptions and you have to make them sound interesting you have to consider all the things involved with selling things online and you have to do copy for social media like 
if I'm funny, people tend to buy things more. So I have to try to come up with interesting things to say and talk about and not just be like, hey, this thing is like, here's an emoji of a heart. Comment that, I guess. No, that won't work. Right. No, it doesn't. Not for me. It, it probably works for some, but uh, I generally have to be witty or at least just be descriptive and real. But I have found that in writing, you get better by writing and reading <laughs> helps as well. I mean, these are like the dumbest pieces of advice. I'm so sorry. But I really enjoy writing and it's something that I do as a hobby. So I get a lot of practice in that, although that's more like fiction kind of stuff. But it has helped me a lot to read and to write and to do some reverse engineering of people doing similar things and how they present. Like if there's a brand that I follow that I really enjoy kind of everything they're putting out there, reading their copy and seeing like, oh, okay, they inject a lot of personality into their stuff. They, you know, describe themselves pretty humbly. Like these are things that I'm drawn to. So I want to make sure to implement those. Writing is a pretty necessary tool if you work in a world where you have to express yourself. So even if you're just normally doing it visually, learning how to talk about your work is important as well. So practicing writing, if you don't know how to write an artist bio or an artist statement and you're like not feeling comfortable doing that, try reading ones that you really enjoy and seeing like, oh, okay, so for an artist statement, that's coming from my point of view. Okay, for, uh, you know, or artist bio or, you know, whatever, that's coming from third person. Like you just figure out these dumb things back and forth reverse engineering is my favorite go-to it all sounds really great i like the, the idea and it sounds easy even still but oh no it's hard it takes a lot of time i mean i've been running this business for probably like seven or eight years and you know between part-time and full-time capacity and i feel like i'm only just now starting to feel comfortable with my writing skills and it's taken years of practice and sometimes time and practice is what you have to do but that's what makes you a better artist in other fields so i have to admit i now I, and this is me again being the the fool on this one but like so i'm going to make myself sound like an idiot for a minute i come from a generation which is a bit stoic like i don't want to share too much of myself like i i would like to put my artwork out and i would like it to simply be appreciated for the sake of what i've done it's sh i feel like there's a certain extent that it doesn't need to be about my about me and about my personality it should be about the whatever the experience the object the artistic thing that i'm putting into the world but these days with social media and websites and all the other things it is it feels like it has become a bit of a necessity to integrate basically your personality yourself your whatever your it could be your studio lifestyle or whatever it is into your art speaking on my own behalf that's very much in my nature to kind of put it all out there i don't embarrass easily i'm just like hey i'll i'll put it all out there i don't care so it, it comes pretty naturally so obviously i'm speaking from that perspective of like this is what works for me this is what i'm drawn to so this is my style and i think that different approaches can be successful as long as you decide what you want to do and be consistent with it even if you have to kind of create a personality that you tap into and you're like, this is part of my performance, that could be an option. Or 
I mean, I don't know. There's no reason to like force yourself to do something that feels really uncomfortable and unnatural just to sell your work when there might be something that feels more comfortable. I mean, I think, you know, Instagram especially is such a visual platform that it's it's what most artists are using, what most people that, you know, interact with art or that are looking for art. So I think there is something that they, that people like to see that peek behind the curtain. I think there is a desire for that. And like Amanda said, there, if you can find a way to do it that feels comfortable and natural. I think there's a performative element just in general to using tools like social media. It doesn't feel quite as natural to me. I think sharing that, you know, I'm a little bit more private, whereas on the podcast, you know, having one-on-one conversations, that feels a lot more comfortable than maybe translating that personal voice into into a caption or into something written. And so I think finding your medium too, you know, we really value transparency. I think that's something that we've tried, we have tried to prioritize um, when it comes to our conversations on the podcast, but I'm, I'm usually not, that, that's been the chosen medium for, for us or for me to, to be vulnerable and to be honest, whereas I'm usually not bringing that same voice over into Instagram and it's a little bit more curated maybe in terms of like what I'm sharing or showing. I love all that. But my issue is this, like Instagram, everybody goes, oh, it's the visual medium. But it's not the visual medium because when you get raised in things, it's because of followers and hashtags and or cross-linking or whatever, all the different sort of techniques that are used. It's all about the algorithms and the words that are used, not the images. The images are the byproduct mm. of doing a good job, but they're not the reason why people do good jobs. Like Because I know, you know there are millions of very talented, creative people that are putting stuff up on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, but because they don't know how to use the system, so they don't know how to use hashtags, they don't know how to use linking, reposting, whatever, you know, um, um, tagging other people in things. All this, like, I just found out last week how to tag another person in Facebook. <laughs> it's 10 years now, and I just figured out how to do this, but I, they changed it on me, I think. But anyways... The point being is, is that it's not the images that necessarily drive the interest. It's they, There is still the necessity of strong text, strong hashtags, strong, strong amount of likes and amount of followers, which of course come from links and tags and hashtags and all this stuff. So like at this exact moment, while it looks like it's a very visual medium, I feel like it's not as visual as everybody thinks it is. Yeah, I guess a visual medium in the sense of like regarding the various forms of social media, it's focused on image and video. How we consume it is very visual. Yeah. But it is a system like anything else, you know, I think uh, you could relate it to the art world at large or, you know, whatever pocket of the art world you're you're navigating. I think it's, you, you know, you're understanding the, the rules of the game or you're understanding how the the platform what rules works. where are these rules written tell me where these rules are written i'm sure they're online articles but they're changing all the time you're at the mercy of facebook right, of instagram and they are dictating you know what what gets seen and you know what what type of content quote unquote is rising to the top and so i think maybe there's where some of that pressure to to perform comes in or to share more of that 
lifestyle or to put on this online persona because it is there's that potential for a broader audience. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a weird and frustrating system because I I think that things like Instagram tend to reward profiles that are already successful on Instagram. So it's like you're going to do or you're doing the right thing already. So we're just going to keep sending people your way. And then people that may be creating still beautiful, incredible, powerful content. If they don't have the followers, people aren't going to see it. And I or the likes or or the the right hashtags or the right tags. I don't understand it. And I've tried I've gone through phases where I tried really hard to understand it where it's like, all right, I'm going to use these hashtags, I am going to be like, photographing in these specific ways, I'm going to be doing all of this. And it just brought me a lot more anxiety than success. And like, I've tried playing into the system, and it wasn't working. And so I sort of had to mentally call myself out and be like, you know what, if you like Instagram, use it the way that you want to, because trying to play into the system isn't making it work anyways. So if you just do it in a way that feels comfortable, I mean, that's like very much my MO. If you haven't picked up on it, like just go with the flow and do what feels right. It's been subtle, but I have picked it up. Yeah, that's made it a lot easier for me as a person who's using it. The success of it is really unpredictable. I might have a picture that all of a sudden I'm like, this has 200 likes. How did that happen? And then I might have a picture that I think is basically the same. And my mom is the only person that sees it. And I'm like, thank you for the comment mom but i'm trying to sell this piece and i don't know why people aren't seeing it it's it's very strange and it's hard to follow i know that there are a lot of resources and podcasts and blogs that talk about how to fall into that algorithm and how to to make it work for you but those things are constantly changing and i think not the same stuff is going to work for everyone even if it is a you know an algorithmic system I really, really hate the time of day being important to when you post things as well, because I live in Europe. And so the time of day for the Europe clientele is different than if I wanted an American people Mm -hmm. seeing it. And it's ridiculously difficult because also even in America, there are three different time zones. So it's like, do you do it for Eastern time? Do you do it for Central or Pacific or even Mountain? You know, whatever, like it, the, the timing of it is very difficult because like, According to the websites, if I were to, and I'm putting air quotes on this, according to the website, the professional websites, at like 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern time is supposedly the most uh, active time on social media, but that is 4 a.m. to me where I live. So I'm not doing that. that, I'm not going to do that. No. You're not interested in waking up at at 4 4 (laughs) a.m.? Not for social media. Like, I mean, when but it, this is my other pet peeve about this which in case i feel like i'm like like the devil's advocate like i'm saying all kinds of negative things and you all are spinning it positively like is this what's going on here because that's what it feels to me i think we all have a love-hate relationship with social media oh yeah i i tried i have to take a month off regularly Normally, I play devil's advocate so i i have no beef with it and i think it's okay i'm taking your role today Yes, now I'm just like, go with the flow, everything's fine, nothing matters. We're all going to make it. I think the artists that we talk to that seem to have the most success on social media are really, you know, they're thinking about it as a tool and they're using it as a starting point for 
a relationship that extends beyond that. So I'm sure there is, you know, strategy to it. And maybe they're thinking about all of these things, like when they're posting, how often they're posting, but really they're using it to, you know, this word engagement is a bit of a buzzword, but to, to really engage, to have a conversation with other people that they want to, you know, maybe collaborate with offline and to use it to just spark dialogue or to, you know, set up a, a show or a project or to, you know, connect to somebody when they're traveling to a city and then turning those into real life opportunities. Um, and I think that's really where their success has come in or that the audience building piece um, is, is just being, you know, using it as a, a starting point to a, a dialogue. Yeah, and we obviously are in a very specific time right now where we can't take things in person. But I think if we remember that social media is just one tool in an artist's toolbox of ways to share your work, you don't have to pour all of your energy or efforts into that one thing. And I'll play a devil's advocate here now. Ultimately, when it comes to social media, you are not a consumer. You are a product. You are the you are the thing that gets those social media platforms to earn an income so pouring all of your energy into that is probably just benefiting things like instagram and facebook more than it's actually benefiting you so if it doesn't work for you you can save yourself the effort and work on something that does work for you i i heard a quote recently that basically said like if you're not paying for something then you're not the customer Mm, yeah. So since we're we're using Instagram for free, we're not the customers. Yeah, our data is is what is making them money. That's right. So like <laughs> we're we're part of the system. We're part of the product. We're not the customer in this mm -hmm. case, which made me very sad for a little while. But I'm over oh, it. Oh yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah, and also on social media, you don't own those followers forever. So like you may build a following there, and then Instagram decides to no longer exist and then you have lost your audience. So also putting all your eggs in one basket is not beneficial in the long run. Sorry, I forgot to add that. It's very important. Yeah. It's good. Okay, so, and next topic, let's move on from social media. I feel like it's really a downer. <laughs> like, no, but nobody likes it. Everybody's upset with it. I feel like it create. I literally feel like it creates more anxiety in my life than it does benefit. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I want to post this picture that I really like. I love this picture. I worked on this picture. I'm a photographer. So I like, I worked on this picture and, and I want to put it out, but I need to put it out at the right time of day. And then I need to put the right hashtag with it to make sure that the idea is really conveyed and that the right people will be able to find it because I'm using the right hashtag. And I spend, well, I don't actually, but I could spend, <laughs> you know, hours a day dwelling on this stuff that literally will not give me any return on the investment of the amount of time I put into this and the amount of anxiety it creates in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If likes equated to sales, we'd all have a little more money. <laughs> now see, that's a type of an Instagram that would be interesting. If you could make it so that like, you get a penny for every like Ooh. and like somebody has to pay you a dollar to follow you. Like That's it. Ooh. That would be All right. a very different system, wouldn't it? I'll just link link Instagram to Patreon. That's a little bit of the social media influencer business model. <laughs> Translating. It's a Patreon kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get on to something more positive and optimistic. What's, sure. uh, how about you all? What, what What's something you all like talking about? 
that you feel isn't talked about enough? Well, really, I think it goes back to your initial question. Something that we we love hearing about from other artists is just the the reality of what their life looks like and how are they how are they sustaining themselves? How are they putting together this puzzle and how are they navigating what it looks like for them to to live a creative life? And it's something that I I still don't think is talked about enough and you know that's part of why we wanted to create the podcast as well is to sort of have a a platform to have those types of conversations and to be able to ask really nosy questions of other artists on you know the behind the scenes of their work and so that I would say is is probably one of our favorite topics that we we love to pry into others lives about Okay. Well, I'm I'm now prying into your life, so sure. Could you please answer I'd... that question for me? <laughs> Which part of it? Well, I mean, the big question, of course, is like, okay, so let's take Nicole first, because you have what I would call sort of a a day job, like a job that is not directly mm-hmm. associated with your art production that you have to put time and energy and thought and effort into that in my opinion like you know so like i'm going to be the purist in this case takes away from your artistic practice so like your job takes away your time your money your energy so like is that the best use of a creative person's life to to work a job that may not give them great success in their arts but gives them some form of stability i love that i can see you laughing here because you're playing devil's advocate yeah, I would counter that. I, I think that there's this sort of, you know, old romantic notion of the artist in their studio that's kind of separate or, you know, insulated from the quote unquote real world that doesn't have to think about all of these real world pressures of how to sustain themselves. And <laughs> I know you're cheering because I, I think we both really pr- probably believe this very strongly and that you know ironically I I think that that mentality detracts from the artist's studio practice because that's just the nature of the world that we live in and unless you are coming and and this is where you know I think we see a lot of these a, a lot of privilege that exists in the art world a lot of you know of these really extreme hierarchies where unless you are coming from independent wealth or you know you have that luxury or privilege to to be able to just dedicate all of your time in the studio without having to think about all of these other things then then you know you are going to have to uh, find a way to to make a living to sustain your work and that can come through your your studio practice you can be you know making your living off of the sale of your work and that's a route that you can go that would allow you to spend well, I guess I'm not even sure that that really allows you to spend more time in the studio because the artists that we've talked to that are are doing that um, do also spend a significant amount of time, um, at least 50%, I would say, on the more administrative or more business side of their work. And so that's really how I think about, you know, my, my day job definitely provides me with a steady income. But I would say, you know, most days I'm, I'm coming home and I'm working on the podcast or I'm, you know, doing something related to my studio practice. So I would say there are kind of two two full-time jobs there and it's 
it's it's finally and this is just a more maybe related to where I'm at in my own personal journey and it hasn't always felt this way but there's starting to feel like an alignment between those things I think that you know my work at CCA and the podcast and in, in my studio are starting to feel a little bit more interconnected whereas you know for some I think making the decision to separate it maybe so they're able to preserve their creative energies for the studio has has worked better but yeah, I think that it's important to to kind of embrace and acknowledge that you'll in order to be successful as an artist. And I guess when I'm when I mean success, I'm thinking of to be able to continue making your work long term just at the most basic level. If that is the goal to to be an artist for your life, then you you have to figure out those time and money equations. And it will it'll change, it will ebb and flow, you know, there'll be different seasons maybe where your focus is shifted. So that's something else that we've taken away from conversations with other artists. So, you know, the balance of your life or your finances, what that looks like today at this moment in time is not necessarily what it will look like a year from now or, you know, a month from now even. And I think that this, not to make this all about the current, you know, circumstance that we're in, but this global pandemic has really shown us how much things can change in an instant. And so that ability to be, to be nimble and to sort of think creatively about all aspects of your work and life is really important. I'll step off the soapbox now. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, but that's sort of the point is, is like, there's a certain amount of stability in our lives that we all want like uh, generally like when i'm talking to my wife about this kind of stuff i generally say like i want a, a certain amount of consistency and ritual and whatever in order to allow for the unknowns the creatives the the absurds the whatever's to happen but like certain things need to be sort of standardized or consistent so like you know getting a job that will give us health insurance and that will be a standard income every month is one of those things that like why do artists have to be the ones to do that why why is why can't it be we, like you never hear of a starving doctor or a starving lawyer but you hear of starving artists and starving musicians for your husband so like why do why is it that the creative industries get the word starving put onto us and we have to work multiple jo side jobs and hustles whereas other professions can have stability and, and have consistency in their mm. lives I want to blame society for not financially valuing art and artist labor, but I and say that it's like part of a big systemic problem. But I think a lot of it is just these false ideas that have been like perpetuated within the artist's field. Like I was in school at art school mm -hmm. studying how to become a full-time artist and I still like had this idea in my head where it's like okay well my brother's studying finance so if I can't make it I could probably at least like crash with him for a while and then like you know maybe that would help and like you know I was thinking about ways to to get around it but I don't know it's it, it's just a bad adit, a bad lie yeah it's it's both you know it is this this systemic issue that speaks to how we value creative labor as a society and then there is also the way that you know kind of trickles down and pervades our and just impacts our own internal mindset around 
you know, holding on to these ideas that, well, if I'm pursuing this creative career, then I'm destined to become a starving artist. And, and that is also really damaging because I think it robs us of the, the ability to really thrive and to be, to have that own, ex, that expectation for ourselves and our lives. And so I think there is, you know, there's both tackling that internal mindset around what is possible, you know, what your life could look like as an artist. And then there is also the, the struggle of these, you know, larger challenges that there just maybe isn't, there isn't funding or there, is, there aren't opportunities. And so I think this is something where, you know, we, we talk about related to, to things like grants and residencies. And, you know, those are one kind of slice of, of opportunity within the art world, but they're very limited. You know, the number of artists far outweighs the number of galleries. And so I think there are these kind of maybe misguided views of success that that aren't necessarily talked about, you know, just because you've sort of reached these mile markers of what you maybe, you know, at the art school level you have in your mind of what it looks like to be a successful artist. But the reality is that doesn't necessarily equate to financial stability or, you know, being able to cover all of these basic needs or to have a retirement account. And so I think that's where there is also that gap and where these conversations come into play is bringing that to light and recognizing that there is an alternative that you can, you know, have and want both of those things and that, you know, we're all extremely creative people. We can find a way to, to get there to work both within the art sector and outside of it and to find alternative sources of funding and ways of sustaining ourselves and connecting with, you know, uh, people and finding an audience. So I do think there are other ways. And that's, that's really, again, what we wanted to uncover by by talking with artists that are doing it in, in really unique ways. So yeah, just piggybacking off what, what Amanda said. Okay, wait, what is this, what is this, uh, what is this retirement fund thing you speak of? I don't know about this thing. Well, it's this mythical idea <laughs> that one day you won't have to work for <laughs> all the work you're doing now because you love doing it. It is um, a total one day you'll just stop. fallacy. Well I, mean, well, I mean, like I talked to, like my wife works in finance and so she works a job that she will mm. at some point retire from that job. I'm in the arts. I'm a professor. I'm not going to retire. I hope to <laughs> die. Well, I have a couple places that I want to die, but one of them is, is in the studio or in the classroom. Like I want to die working. I'm fine with that. Like I actually had a teacher at my school who died in the classroom, literally teaching us. It was very entertaining. <laughs> like oh I mean, my he was, goodness. He what was happy. He was fine. It wasn't that bad. But <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> but, like, better than a lot of ways. Wow, yeah. that's a story. It's exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, why would I want to retire? Like, what is this retire thing? Like, the, the artists don't retire. Artists just suddenly have more time is what they have. <laughs> like, like, well, yeah, I think, you know, if any, obviously this uh, being an artist is a labor of love. It's something that, you know, none of us got into for the money, but it's because we <laughs> oh, no, feel I'm deeply connected or, or passionate about it. Maybe, but then I, I do think we have to be careful about making that distinction. Just because we love something or we're passionate about it doesn't mean we shouldn't value our own time and work or be well compensated for it or, you know, have the the option or the opportunity to I feel like I'm being I feel like I'm being <laughs> lectured by a professor like about like the professional <laughs> oh, practices. No. Like I feel like you're 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 doing like a motivational speech that I need to get it together. <laughs> get get your shit together, Matt. Like, okay, okay, okay. Get oh, I'm together. so sorry. 
no, no, it's fine. I need to get my shit together. It's okay. So <laughs> I'm also speaking to myself. I think it's important to note that, you know, we say these things because we are trying to internalize it personally. And it, there are things that I wish I would have had somebody tell me. Okay. Two things that you, that you mentioned that I want to sort of come back to. One is the uh, trying to figure out because I've had many different discussions with you know curators and institutional people and gallerists and artists, the definition of success in the art it's world. Personal. I find <laughs> it's very personal. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is, but like, but we all talk about success, but we're using one word to describe a lot of different outcomes depending on who's saying it. So, from your individual perspectives, what's your definitions of success? for yourself? Well, I think it's very important in general to recognize your definition of success is going to be different. So identifying that early on and like what you want your career to look like is very helpful in following through with that. For me, success is just being able to make my work and leaning into my like defiant personality, not having to have a boss that isn't myself. <laughs> I've learned from most of my jobs that I can handle being at a job for about two years and then I get real annoyed and I'm like I need to leave immediately so when I work for myself it's a hell of a lot easier because I am generally okay with me most of the time but I'm still probably the worst boss I've ever had but I think that <laughs> I'm the the least understanding the least compassionate the the least kind boss most critical but I recognize, and Nicole and I, we had actually done a podcast episode about this, about like understanding your own personality and what you see as successful and what you want for yourself. And if you want to work for yourself full time, like I do, thinking about, and this is something that I had to do very early on, is thinking what kind of job or what, what type of benefits would I expect to get at a job if I worked for someone else? And if I respect myself as an employee a much it, it enough to demand that of someone else, I should, as my own boss, try to provide those services, which is very hard and I don't do often, aside from some really, really shitty health insurance that I get that is, who knows how long I can have that. But I think that recognizing what you want for yourself will make it a hell of a lot easier to achieve because if you're comparing your success to someone else's, then you're trying to mold your life to someone else's lifestyle and that may not fit. But yeah, I want, I want to work for myself as my, as long as possible. And I just want to be able to make art consistently until I can't breathe <laughs> anymore. Yeah, I would agree. I think my definition is fairly simple. Just the ability to keep making work, to be an artist for my life. And, you know, that will take on different meanings and definitions, but I think the opportunity to impact other artists too, you know, this kind of personal mission we've been talking about has become kind of a, a driving force and just being able to, you know, have basic needs met, but being able to spend time and surrounded with people I love. And I live here with my partner and dog and I've been working from home now for over a month. And so I think that's just reminded me of, you know, some of those things that are really important. So just the ability to keep, you know, making the work that we want to make and that that really is a privilege. So that's what success looks like for me. All right. I like how you wrapped it up at the end there. Like, yeah, 
tight lecture. It's good. So, <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> another question that sort of popped in my head when you were talking was, what about the issue of student loans in America? I have been out of school now for 19 years, and I am still paying off my student loans. And I'm looking forward to that 25-year point when I can like write it off on my taxes, which I hope is not a myth because I've been banking on that happening. So did you all have to take out student loans? Because the reason why I ask is also because my wife is getting her master's here in the Czech Republic, and it's free because she's a Czech citizen. She gets free education. Beautiful. Wow. Must be nice. <laughs> that's yeah, that's amazing. Oh, um, she. What you want to know? One that's really amazing. A a woman who works a job and has a baby gets. Uh, guess how long they get maternity leave? Oh, I probably don't even want to know. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Three years. Oh my gosh. Three years paid by the government. Wow. And this is... So it's not even paid by her employer. It's paid by the government based on her salary when she goes out on maternity leave. So, yeah, she gets to stay out for up to three years. Oh, my God. Well, yet another reason why I've chosen to not have children as a U.S. citizen. I'll tell you, there are a lot of countries that have done that do other things right, like support arts better, support women better for like pregnancies and things like Mm -hmm. this. Like, there are so many other countries than America that do it so much better. You know, going back to student loans and the cost of education, which I feel like Mm -hmm. is astronomical. I mean, as I said, I'm 19 years out and I'm still paying off my student loan. So, did you all have to get any student loans, and are you dealing with the same situations? I had one small loan that I have paid off, but I also had a scholarship, which helped a lot. And another privilege thing, my grandparents set aside a college fund when I was born. So that had some years to build. So between that, the scholarship and my small loan, that covered my cost of MICA, which probably is not even close to what it costs now. Yeah, I think, I mean, you've pointed out another huge systemic issue here in the States, and it's through no, you know, fault of an, an individual school or institution, but it, it really is a broader... And it's not your fault. I'm not blaming either of you, just to be clear. Oh, no, it's our system. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, colleges in the United States are, they are functioning like businesses. They're trying, they're you know, and struggling now, especially in some cases, I'm sure, um, you know, I was so, so sad to hear the news about SFAI that came out just a couple of weeks ago that they're on the brink of this. I actually just got an email from them last night. They say they're going, they have a, a I don't know, guardian angel that's coming in to save them. I, I hope so. You know, I think that, yeah, co- colleges are also struggling to stay afloat in some cases. So I understand it, but that doesn't that doesn't justify the high cost of tuition. And I, I also had to take out student loans. I, you know, like Amanda, I think we we need to acknowledge this element of privilege here. You know, I, I had a very supportive family um, that helped me pay my way through college. We also made a, a joint decision that, you know, if I were to go to this really expensive private school for undergrad, then that that was it that, you know, if I was looking at 
additional education or graduate school. That that was really up to me. And so that's part of the reason I haven't pursued a graduate degree. I did also receive... Yeah, just to be clear, on my student loan, it's only mm-hmm. my a graduate degree that I'm repaying mm. still 19 years later. My undergrad, I had other methods of paying for that. So this is just my graduate program that I'm still repaying 19 years later. Mm-hmm. And like Nicole, I also only got an undergrad. Yeah, there have also been other decisions that dictated, you know, whatever, where my, my current financial situation is. And so um, receiving scholarships to MICA definitely helped. I also worked, you know, my way through college. I, Amanda mentioned, worked as an RA. I worked every summer on campus so that I could receive free housing. I also graduated a semester early from, you know, credits saved up from high school to to be able to save on that final semester of tuition. So there were, you know, other decisions that helped to make that not as much of a burden yeah, as it could have I, I dealt been. drugs I mean, um, that, that didn't help as much as it but could. But I'm still dealing with debts as well. Oh, I thought she was going to say I'm still dealing drugs as well. No. <laughs> so did I. That's what I thought she was going to say too. Yeah. No. Yes, no but... I, yeah, <laughs> just to be clear, hustle. I said that I, I dealt drugs through college, which is a total joke. Oh. <laughs> I did, yeah, no, I did I not deal that. drugs. I used drugs, I was but say, I did I not deal drugs. There's a big deal, difference. I... <laughs> okay. Yes. Oh, no, I, I imbibed, I <laughs> inhaled, I did whatever I needed to do to get my what I needed, but I did not deal drugs, just to be perfectly clear, because my father listens to this podcast. Oh, so. my mom listens to ours, and there was a conversation where I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm stoned all the time. And I'm like, my mom knows. I guess it's fine. Oh, I could tell you stories about my parents and my drug use that are so funny, but I'm not going to. Because this is not an interview for me. It is, yes. It's for when somebody invites me on their podcast, I'll tell them the funny stories about scrambled eggs and my mother with marijuana. When you go on the Joe Rogan podcast, he'll love to talk about it. Well, I was a... I was a roadie in uh, in Washington D.C. for many years. I worked at the Nine Thirty Club oh and that God. kind of stuff. So, like, I know Nine Thirty oh, well. I've got yes. stories. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, no. Oh, but I used to hang out at the original Nine Thirty Club. Oh, OG. The li- little tiny place in the like middle uh-huh. of a city block. It was the coolest place ever when I was in like high school. But that's because I had like my high school had minor threat play our high school homecoming growing up in yes. south florida we didn't quite have the uh the punk scene you had up in dc at that time no yeah i grew up with fugazi and all that gang around just like they lived you know a couple blocks away from me so oh. anyways okay i got one last sort of bigger question and it relates back to the definition of success kind of an idea because i often ask people this question and and i get interesting responses so if you had the option, and these are your only two options, so don't say anything like, oh, I want to compromise in the middle. No, it's one or the other. Extremes, those are the only things you can choose from. You can either be consistently earning money, but not a lot of money from your art for the rest of your life, or you can be in the history books as an iconic figure in the arts but you will not earn a living for the rest of your life. Which would you choose? I would rather be a starving artist <laughs> or a somewhat starving artist. <laughs> a so you want to be famous then? No, or, sorry. 
I want to be the artist who is making art and making meh money. I don't care if I'm famous. I'm not that interesting. But I want to make art and have a decent life. So I'll go with that. <laughs> and my fame will do me nothing if I'm dead. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with Amanda. It's a great question. I love a good word. Would you rather? When I was a kid in, in my schooling, our teachers used to try to promote, like, you want to be in the history books. You want to be the, the iconic figure of a period you want to be the example of a style kind of thing like this is the stuff that my teachers mm -hmm. like the amount of pressure they put us under when we, we were in school and yeah. like, and <laughs> now after you know 20 some odd years out of school i'm like no i just want to i just want to be left alone and i want to be able to do my work without anybody telling me what to do and i mean if that kind of thing happens okay fine that kind of thing happens but like just let me do my thing like, don't make me write all these freaking grants. Don't make me, like, do all this stupid paperwork and business shit. Like, I want to just be left alone in the studio to do what I do. Because this is, okay, this goes back to the question about, like, having a full-time job that might not have anything to do with your work kind of thing. I want it. This is my grand desire for the arts world. I want artists to be able to make enough money to just be left alone and do what they want to do without needing to do side hustles and that they can be supported in that. Now, that does not mean rich. That does not mean well off. It just means enough money to live and buy their art supplies and have space to do what they want to do. And that's it. Bare bones. Like everybody can get that fundamental level of income. So that then they're like the quality of creative output would become exponentially more impressive and and explosive in such a way that the arts industry has never seen before, because that amount of freedom and that amount of security would make for a massive explosion of creativity. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful vision of the future. And I think it can be done. I, I think. Some of it is opening up your idea of what a successful artist looks like and be like what being successful in the arts can look like and being open to the idea that there are a lot of different career paths within that and finding the one that fits you the best. And if you're doing a model that feels really not right for your business or for your art, maybe shifting perspectives and doing something different but I, I think it can be done it just takes a while to figure out what works for you yeah and the question seems related to your what's your your internal motivation and it doesn't not to say that you know if you desire to be iconic famous artists that you you know you're not you don't care about the work so that's definitely not what I'm trying to say but I think that you know for um, for me, it is about the work, and so just that being that process of being able to, you know, to make your work in the studio, I think that's what it comes back to. And so the ability to do that, you know, to have your basic needs met, versus you know the kind of foregone conclusion of, of just ch chasing fame or chasing something that is about more about external recognition, I think, is it the the reason that I became an artist well but the, okay i the, <laughs> I've, you, you've gotten me all worked up now so the <laughs> the 
artists as a general whole, I, this is one thing I have a great disdain for is when people say, sorry, and I apologize if this is sort of like on your toes, Nicole, but like, I have a great disdain for people mm -hmm. that say, I make my art for myself. It's not for anyone else. Now that is complete mm -hmm. bullshit. Okay. Because if you made art for yourself, you would never show it to anyone. So simply by the act of producing something and showing it to somebody else, it's now for them. Oh, absolutely. I, do, you think, do you think there's a difference or would you make a distinction between searching for, let's say, ex validation or external recognition and searching for fame? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a big difference there. I mean, fame is you know, massive accolades, rich, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, name recognition, brand recognition, this kind of thing. What I'm talking about is, is that just the simple act of like people say like, oh, I don't want other people's approval for my art. That's bullshit. We all, we all mm -hmm. want other people's mm -hmm. approval for what we create. So like, it, I mean, it doesn't even matter if you work in an office. You work in an office, you want your boss's approval for the job that you've done. So it's the same basic idea that we're all mm -hmm. seeking some sort of external approval that we're doing whatever we do well. Yes. I care very much about what other people think of me. <laughs> Apologies if I, that was not clear for me earlier. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're yeah, saying. It's hard, it, it, but it, it's very hard because creative people, like, if you work in an office and you just want your boss's approval, well, you just do your job well. That's all you have to do. It's nothing personal, nothing like that. But like when an artist creates something, it's very uh, connected to us. It's very emotional. Oftentimes it's very mm -hmm. personal to us in many ways oftentimes. And so when we get lack of support and we get rejection and whatever we get, we often do take it very personally. Oh, it's so personal. We pour so much of ourselves into our work and a rejection of the work feels like a rejection of yourself because you are what created that. You are what fueled it. It came from your hands, your mind, whatever. It came from you. So to have that rejected, it it feels personal and it stings. But I, I think I try very hard, unsuccessfully, but I try very hard to remember that like what I put into the work, it stops when other people receive it. That is you know, they take control from then or from there, they decide what it means to them, how they receive it, whatever. But if I get the satisfaction of what I need from putting the work out there and creating it, I try to just take it at that. It's very healthy. But also like, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm still on Instagram and people are not liking my posts, I'm like, great, well, this piece is a failure. It will never sell. I should, you know, Try to find a job ASAP. It's hard. Art is hard. Yeah. Learning, learning to sit with that, I think, and, you know, to, to, to work through that, too, is one of the, maybe the biggest challenges of being an artist is that, that balance between, you know, what, what the work means to you and then what it means to others or what you want it to mean to others. And like you said, Amanda, there there has to be a certain detachment around what happens after after it leaves your studio or after it's made or just you know being able to to continue to work through those feelings and to to keep making work despite what might be perceived as a you know a, a personal rejection of the work indeed okay well on that lovely uplifting note <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your time <laughs> just keep making your work 
That's what I would say. It, it's true. I mean, having a thick skin and having tenacity are probably the two best assets that any artist can have. Yeah. Yeah. Another definition that I've I've heard and I feel like I've quoted of success before is that you know success equals persistence. I think in the arts, that's something that is very true that you know most would aspire to is just the ability to keep making. That's it's it's easier said than done. It's, there's such a simple truth. Mm-hmm.